Welcome back to the Redefine podcast. So we've come back from a very long hiatus, but we're here to stay as things are gonna get a little bit crazy. And I'm gonna give you a few updates of where we plan to be going as time goes on. So we're gonna be starting getting a little bit more of our guests on, going through more of the psychology behind a lot of things that we do from ADHD to more on behavior change, dealing with disordered eating, but also looking at things in a different light from that and as well of training, or to kind of encompass everything about health. I have aspirations next year to get into medicine, so things have been a little bit hectic preparing for that, but I'll keep you guys updated with some of the fun that comes along with it, but then it also opens up more doors for myself to try and help you guys listening. So stay tuned for today's episode, which is with Sophie Thomas. And the beauty of this episode is how we integrate philosophy into behavior change and psychology. And it's it's truly a wonderful topic and we're definitely going to like it in terms of it's going to help people think of it in a different way and give you directions on where we possibly could go. But we also take a look at resilience and how it's not just grinding and that effectively some of the hardest workers you will ever meet are those currently struggling with something and going out and getting it done compared to someone who wakes up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the gym. So I hope you really enjoy today's episode. And if you ever have any requests of who you would like to hear on the podcast, do reach out as I would love to hear it. So stay tuned and enjoy today's beautiful episode. Um, Gary Kasparov talks about it in his book, um, whereby he discusses the need for implementing mistakes to actually mimic human creativity. Because actually at the time, they were all these um, creators of these computers were saying, they're going to take over the chess world. We won't need humans anymore to play chess. And actually initially, obviously... In chess, you have millions of algorithms and millions of potential outcomes, especially each time you move a piece. It's like a probability tree that just grows exponentially. So each time a piece makes a move, you're kind of creating a massive ripple effect of more and more possible moves. And the computer account will attempts to account for this. So there's a lot of complex um, coding input into these computers. But the problem is the computers at the time initially didn't account for the fact that the best grandmasters will take risks, will purposefully make blunders to psychologically, you know, make someone feel more assured of their win. They'll actually kind of create strategic moves that are quote unquote mistakes and wouldn't dare be put into a very perfect world of code or algorithmic outputs. But at the end of the day, that's how the grandmasters would win by taking advantage of the human aspect of their opponent. And so they had to go back and revisit the deep blue computer, I believe it was called, and input purposefully these mistakes that the grandmasters would make. Because ultimately, that that's how they were the best of the of the game. Because it wasn't just chess. Chess, especially at that level, it's book out, it's about that psychological it, it like fencing you having with the other person. And the computer initially didn't account for that. So it was by saying and putting into the code create this blunder, create this blip if and when this happens and again, creating that big old probability tree within the code. But then going for those like, you know, roguish moves, that was when the computer started to really learn and pick up successful wins and successful games by actually input in, inputting human error, which I find really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, the best AI or the most uh, well-integrated AI is not about how smart it is or how impressive it is. It's about how human it is mm-hmm. and 
to be human, you have to to err, you have to be flawed, and you have to make mistakes. And so, the I found the deep blue computer is perfectly it perfectly encapsulates that massive issue. It's such a yeah, it's so wonderful to talk about those things, especially because it's very few people want to talk about the psychological side of AI or talk about how that intertwines with things, which really it's really should to a certain extent yeah i have too many questions but i won't go down there <laughs> it's like but it's super interesting and i think like the reason why there's such an overlap between the intrigue of psychology and ai is because the concept of neural networks has really elevated psychological and neuroscience research to, mm -hmm. to a better level um it's created better standards for theories it's kind of poo-hooed some of the qualitative data that's a bit dodgy and that just is a bit more vague and it's put forth a lot of robust mechanisms for cognitive processes and un underpinning why those processes take place in the brain so i think is why there's a massive interest in some surge of demand for in integrating the brain and ai even though the computer is not the, the, the mind is not hardware the mind is not computer i hate it when people put that uh comparison in it's a very it's a very Lex Friedman-y way of looking at it, and it's not yeah. wholly accurate. But in terms of setting up a robust experiment and creating good theory, neural networks are useful because you can start to explore relationships a bit more that you can't do in your typical hy hypothesis-driven experiment. So it creates a lot more wiggle room to explore. So you're already sorting out the funding for what you want to try and study. It's a bit more, uh, it gives you a bit more free form for that. And it challenges pre uh, presuppositions and assumptions that were potentially done under questionable um, questionable methodological structures. And so by doing that, you can then to go into the nitty gritty and start to tweak. And so a lot of AI has tried to account for this and tried to utilize this in the way people behave and how AI can then behave. And it's a, it's a really good basis. Um, a, lot of, a lot of AI companies use neural networks um, and um, NLP stuff as well to try and get the model to actually be more human and i think it's a great start um obviously there's so much more to go down in but people are surprised and can be surprised by how much the world of psychology and ai, AI interact yeah. because you need psychology to get good ai which <laughs> is very true because it's like when, when you bring it down to the basis like what are you doing it's human behavior you're trying to mimic and it's like without a, a, a good understanding of how that works it's never going to change which is my segue, actually. When it comes to yourself, you wrote a wonderful book that philosophy or philosophy, basically, yeah. really done very well, actually. I was, like, I was like, this is done well. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration that drew you to write on that. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you so much for the compliment. Obviously, like I always get really fuzzy hearted when someone compliments my book because it was basically just like a create it was a creative endeavor during lockdown I never even thought it would get published so the fact it's even getting published I'm still like can I pinch myself now and just wake up please <laughs> I'm still not quite used to it um but the inspiration was uh, it, it came from a uh, it was multifactorial and it's funny because during my time as a coach um and I'm sure you'll understand this with your psychology background as well it always dumbfounded me a little bit that the industry never focused on behavior or mindset or looking at the human behavior and the way the mind works because if you think about it behavior like the way we interact with ourselves and the world around us and people around us heavily influences or is or predicates 
the outputs of our goals or how we want to get to a goal. Um, and I was at the time, obviously I was doing my master's and I've been a, so I'm a student of cognitive psychology and a student of philosophy through various courses. And I, I love, I love the way that um, philosophers articulate essentially very contemporary ideas that we can relate to now, but in the most truest of wisdoms in a sense, I always loved the idea that philosophy is basically psychology's grandfather. Um, in fact, science once was once called the natural philosophy. So you have a lot of intersections with how they work and how they try and tease out a problem. And I've always utilized a lot of philosophical concepts when are trying to improve a client's life or trying to get them to engage with behavior change. Because for me, it's never been successful when you just tell a client to track calories or get or get more steps in or give them a little cute little table of just drink more water. Of course, you can absolutely utilize these as tools to an extent, but you find, especially when you get to know your clients more on a human level, on a deeper level, they aren't just robots with a certain goal in mind and they're just you know churning out these numbers they are real human beings and people with desires fears dreams hopes and once you get to the crux of them you realize that a lot of their behaviors stem from a whole al algorithm and amalgamation of how they live and how they interact with the world so to choose to, to try and purely just tackle the issues they have with habit change on a very clinical cold level one, you're not necessarily empathizing or connecting with the client, which I think does it doesn't make you make you a bad coach. I think a lot of coaches think, oh yes, like this, I really want to help my clients, so I'm going to attach myself to this one way of being or doing, and I it it comes from a really good place and a really good heart. But it, obviously, you're not connecting that. You're you're kind of so entrenched in the coach role, you're not looking at the human role of you mm -hmm. and the and, and the client. So that that happens, and two you end up forgetting the path that it's taken them to get to the place where they are now. You're just looking purely at the path ahead of them, but the path behind them and the whys and the hows and the what's of what they were doing before you guys met as client and coach is just as important for informing yourself on how to approach their issues. And I found that philosophy in the past for me on a personal level has really helped me better understand my behavior, my mindset, my psychology in a way that's profound whether it be through, um, in the case of Nietzsche, like a, a, a kind of like a parable of religiosity, or even in the case of Albert Camus, when you're looking at like a kind of a an an, an analogy of a, a Grecian myth, looking at the meaning of life, um, and it really helped me articulate, at least mentally, what I was thinking, why I needed to do these things, and why I was currently doing this stuff in the present, and how I can move on from that. And so over time, I utilized all these findings. I I I studied in philosophy and to great success. And I realized that we talk a lot about behavior change and psychology in everyday life, but I think philosophy gets forgotten a bit. And actually we can, we can attribute so much of psychology and even the research today to philosophy. I mean, CBT was literally based on a theory that was inspired by stoicism. So it has its roots basically branched off in there. So I wanted to write a book that was engaging in a way that didn't make philosophy as boring as it can be. Because sometimes when you read a Kantian book, you're like, this sentence has lasted three pages. When is it over? How many more pages is this book over? <laughs> That's not fun. So I wanted to try and do the legwork for people and make it engaging in a, in a nutshell, whilst also showing them the psychology of her habits and how they can basically empower themselves by understanding themselves and therefore having greater success with understanding why they do what they do and what they need to do to have a healthier, more fulfilling life and getting most out of life. I, I love it because it's like, 
philosophy is such a wonderful thing that is not used. It's always seen as an archaic method. You know, we don't need this in today's world. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's very much the idea of we don't need philosophy. We just need science. But mm. but like I said, science was once called the natural philosophy because they both have a very rigorous way of creating valid and sound arguments. Like when I'm designing a science paper or sort of research study, or you know, I'm create I'm writing a paper. I have to have a very sound and valid premise and I have to really articulate my research methods in the same way. I'm creating a philosophical argument. Like I think chocolate is good. Well, I need to have a really good valid <laughs> argument. Chocolate is good. And I need to have a sound premise. Otherwise people aren't, I, uh, well, they won't listen, but also my argument falls flat. And then by the end of it, no one will think chocolate is good, which makes me feel very sad inside. So philosophy is necessary for you to articulate your thoughts. First off on a practical level, you need to articulate why something is xyz good or bad for you but you, it helps you process and validate logical syllogisms to the point where you can actually express yourself and actually express yourself in a way that's meaningful and then from there you've got this really nice framework for expressing yourself and saying what you want to say then comes in concepts like metaphysics and ethics and what does it mean to be a good person what does it mean to be good and what does it mean to lead a meaningful life is life worth living doing xyz or can we all be hedonistic and is that just is that is that enough for us and it's really important that we combine the valid framework with these deep profound ideas because it helps us figure out in our heads what it means for us to live a good life and therefore be good to ourselves and look after the greater community so philosophy helps us understand and navigate these really complex issues which is really important in a world which is very complex and seemingly very overwhelming it actually helps us be able to um, distinguish between all the distraction the noise the technological advances and just get back down to a root core of what it means to have these set of ethics or what it means to be driven by a certain habit or desire and that's really important i think i like that if we if we had someone sitting here and we're going to call said person bob how are we doing visible bob hi bob so nice to meet you <laughs> You, you <laughs> it's like, why do you have to wear the voice, Bob? <laughs> but if we carry on, Bob goes, okay, so how would I implement or where would I start to bring philosophy into this so I could see a change in my life? So I think I'm sure everyone would say this. Many people would say this. Honestly, I think that one of the best gateway drugs in philosophy, the gateway doors, is akin to Stoicism or Albert Camus because they're very readable. Mm. Now, I'm not saying you necessarily have to abide by what they're saying, right? But the reason why I say this is that, first off, unfortunately, you see stoicism everywhere, literally in every Instagram post. Now, I don't necessarily agree with, for instance, Ryan Holiday's take on stoicism purely because those types of posts make stoicism out to be a purely entrepreneurial um like grasp at life so they look at the ways you manage yourself and you look after the individual stoicism itself was very much heavily heavily into virtue ethics and how to be a good person how to lead, lead life for others but in a way that was articulate and simple to read so you can read something like marcus aurelius's meditations and you're three pages in and you've already got oh this is such a simple concept of how to be a better human that I kind of knew it intuitively, but now that someone's articulated it in such a profoundly simple way, it carry it's carrying with me and I can take it on with me for the rest of my day. So if Bob was sitting here, I'd probably say to him, stick with con with readable texts that make you enjoy philosophy. The, the last thing you want to do is go into something like Hegel or Kant. And they both had brilliant ideas, 
but they are not readable. Honestly, I, I read Kant even when I say for the joy of it, because I actually enjoy getting to the pith of his ideas. I don't enjoy reading Kant. Kant he's, he's not an enjoyable writer, but I enjoy his ideas. Mm. Now, it's a bit like training in the gym, right? I'd say to Bob, you can't just go off and lift a hundred kilo squat if you've never squatted before in your life. You have to build up. So getting something as simple as um, The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus, which is a weirdly macabre, entertaining read about the meaning of life and how we can create meaning, even if you personally don't think there's meaning in life, or a, a book on, on Stoicism by Aurelius, for instance, which is relatively short and it's passed in nice paragraphs and content kind of p- content pages. So it's it's nice and clean to read. You can then get engaged with these ideas that philosophy is putting forth at you. And if you so wish, you can take either take them with you and say, that's enough philosophy for me for this month. But what I've learned and what I've gathered is really useful for me to just be aware of my behavior and how my, my behaviors affect others. Or you can get the reading bug and read some more of said authors or said thinkers or even, dare I say it, Kant or Hegel. So I would say to Bob, start simple, read some um, stoicism by people like um, like Aurelius. Even Pla- people like Plato and or Aristotle are quite clear in what they say. So start off in a way that's going to be engaging for you and then slowly build up. Don't overwhelm yourself. Philosophy can be uh, massively, um, massively overwhelming at times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Make you question all of existence. And then you're sitting there going, why do I feel like I'm in a black hole currently? <laughs> why do I feel so miserable? <laughs> why do I feel like just a blob in nothingness? And that's the thing. Some philosophers can, it's, it, there's a, there's a, there's a bittersweet beauty in questioning your own existence mm. because you start to realize, literally all these worries I have about taking the trash out or paying my rent on time or this person's not talking to me I'm sad you're like this is so small when I'm considering the vast cosmic horror that is existence (laughs) so it's both a good and a bad thing it prioritizes your concerns (laughs) I think it's also wonderful in that same thing it's I know it's like some of the the most trying times in my life I think it's when you truly have to gaze upon the stars and just recognize your insignificance in this reality it's or matrix just for those who like hearing that (laughs) it it brings you to such a I don't know such a self-fulfilling place it's just like you know everything is naturally going to come to end everything flows to entropy you know it's just it keeps that position. And then from there, you're like, hey, you can take solace, you can move forward and make change. With that, like I know in parts of your book, you were talking through, say, the likes of CBT in terms of helping create change. How would you implement that for, say, someone who's now trying to make change in their life, whether it be for weight loss, gym, whether it be just overall mood change? So assuming this is either Bob or a new, a new, a new human being who's entered the chat. Well, Bob's again, the thing about CBT, it's funny. It's a bit like mental gymnastics. And I love that phrase because mental gymnastics, when people say, oh, that person's making really big mental gymnastics in their logical thinking. Obviously, when it comes to something like creating an argument about politics or philosophy, you don't really want to be doing loads of calisthenics on your thoughts because you want it something that's nice and straight and linear so it's clear to read and make sense but when it comes to our own thoughts about ourselves everyone and including myself make mental gymnastics every day about the decisions we make about how we perceive ourselves about how we perceive our interactions with someone and that can be really overwhelming again and what i like about cbt is that it can simplify things a bit 
it can challenge those jumps, those constant hops and jumps you make. And it just gives you a bit of breathing space and wiggle room through all the noise you have in your head. So I'm Bob, let's say Bob has a lot of noise surrounding the idea of, as you say, habit change or even mood. It could be that he thinks that, you know, he's really out of shape. And therefore, he feels like a failure. He feels worthless. And then the behavior might be to, for instance, withdraw from the world, not be as social, be very, I'm introverted, but be be socially withdrawn, have social um, adhenoia. That's a very complicated, annoying (laughs) to pronounce word. But basically, he's very withdrawn and doesn't really want to engage with the world as a result of these thoughts and feelings. So the first thing he can do is actually try and challenge that thought of, I am out of shape. That's a very blunt and nihilistic way of seeing that I've been so busy with work lately. I've been really overwhelmed with stress. So I haven't had as much time as I'd like to, to go to the gym. So then you're taking away that feeling of I'm a a worthless failure as actually I've been killing it in my career. And so I'm definitely not a worthless failure, even objectively speaking, even if I have these feelings in, in my heart and my head. So Maybe it's a matter of me actually just looking at prioritizing my health so I can feel a bit more in control of the situation. And then that behavior changes from being really withdrawn to being a bit more encouraged and motivated by looking at your plan of thinking, right, work is killing me at the moment. Where can I fit in on the weekend? 10 minutes of going for a walk or 10 minutes of meal prep, something small to build up. And again, make him feel like he's including this a bit more of his life. So he's not just Bob the careerist, he's Bob the human being with hobbies and ambitions as well as work. So I would say that's that's one thing he can definitely do. And another thing, once he builds up from that, we start to create kind of a pros and cons behavior list. So now he's starting to slowly, uh, you know, unwedge this entrenched notional image of him being a worthless out of shape failure which is not objectively true but of course our brains can be play nasty tricks on us and leave us feeling very cold and sad about ourselves but he's thankfully starting to see that actually he's not a failure he's done so bloody well in his career and actually he's done so well he's not prioritized this aspect of his life so now he can look at some behavioral pros and cons and re and reshape this um this habit framework he has so he can look at himself and think, right, I never get to bed. I don't get to get to bed until like 2 a.m. in the morning, partly because I'm so stressed at work, partly because I just want to watch Netflix when I get home to de- to unwind. So sleep hygiene is great because once you get some sleep hygiene in you, not only do you cognitively and physically feel better, but mentally you feel more in control. So then other habits kind of fall in line a bit better. So he can say, right, what are the pros of me going to bed earlier? Well, odds are I'm probably going to feel a lot more energized in the morning i'm going to be a lot less grumpy to my partner to my to my parents to my whatever i'm going to feel more motivated to go to the gym at least once a week right now because i'm actually not sleep deprived i'm actually gonna enjoy my breakfast and not feel rushed because i've you know my sleep's all over the place and then importantly he has to look at the difficulties of how difficult is it to actually change a sleep pattern because if you just look at all the positives of changing a habit you'll feel even worse in yourself when it's harder to stick to because habit change is really hard so he's like right well a con is like, obviously i can't watch netflix till 3am which does suck and another con is you know i have to actually go to bed earlier this concept oh god i have to do this thing that we all have to do and go to bed earlier which i struggle with well, and well. He- you know, it's it's a it's poor Bob. Life is hard. Life is hard out there for Bob. And by acknowledging the cons, he actually gets a bit of an honest appraisal of what it's like to change the habits. And in my 
I'm talking as Sophie, the Sophie, like as the psychology student and also Sophie, personal speaking, I've got two, two heads here. The research suggests that if we're not actually honest about our situation, we actually can't make meaningful change. And personal Sophie also says that in my opinion, if we can't be honest with ourselves, we're continually fooling ourselves and therefore feeding into that deception that we are worthless, we are this and that, because we're creating this illusion. By saying, yeah, it's going to be hard, but look how many pros outweigh the cons on your list. Then you're thinking, okay, it's kind of worth it to have that difficulty because look at all the pros I get. And you start to get an honest appraisal of the habit change where Bob's thinking, okay, it sucks. I can't watch Netflix till 3am, but look at all these pros I'm going to get. So I'd start by those two things. I'd start by starting to challenge the negative thoughts and kind of um, image and illusion he has of himself by just starting to dismantle them. And I'd also create a pros and cons list of his behavior for when it comes to a habit. So it, it gives him a better idea of where he's at. And actually when he steps back, it is worth the time and effort that he has to in- incrementally build. I like it. Elegantly put, but also very easy to do. And I think that's one of the the nicest things about CBT, it's it doesn't have to be extravagant. No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when it's like you hear people talking about behavior change, I'm like, yes, it is hard, but like seriously, like calm the fuck down and stop overcomplicating it. Mm-hmm. Would that also it would be nice to get your opinion on that? That the need for discomfort is only how we change. What is your thoughts? That's a really, really good saying. I have need for. Could you repeat that saying for me again? The need for discomfort is the only way we can change. You know what? I I have, again, psychologist Sophie has thoughts on this whole concept of just do the grind. Personal <laughs> Sophie has thoughts on it. They're both pretty similar, actually. It's funny, I think, that we're fed this dialogue throughout social media of just do the grind, this discomfort. Um, personal Sophie... Think, looks at it from also a, a socio-cultural perspective again this is personal sophie speaking not psychologist sophie i'm going to take t- change my hats very quickly and i think as well because we live in a, a very individualistic society i'm not saying that's good or bad i just it, it is it, especially in the west we're driven by individualism it's just it's a cultural trope um in general of course there are exceptions i think as well because there is this unfettered chaos right now in our political landscape social cultural landscape gives people a lack of control internally. And I think that if they have a notion of, if I just work hard, I'll get X, Y, Z, I'll achieve this kind of notion of meritocracy, right? Which is not a bad thing. It's it's good to have goals and aspire to them and watch it and work for them. I think it's a good trait. It's a good thing to, to work to work on. Um, that they'll constantly be given this message of just drive and be, and it, you know, it, things aren't worth it if they're, if they're easy or you have to find something difficult for you to to have progress and i think by doing this they feel like in this all this chaos it gives them a sense of meaning and it gives them a path towards that and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing until you get to the extreme which i'm going to put my psychologist hat on um you know resilience is not something that requires a lot of discomfort or difficulty and actually you can go down the other path where you end up being very self-loathing um and very self-deprecating because you haven't achieved something you don't look a certain way because everyone's told you just grind hard and be uncomfortable and you'll get this and as we know it's not as, it's not as simple as that there are so many multi uh, it's a multifactorial spider's web of external factors and yes internal factors of course 
but it doesn't matter how much you tell some like someone basically you're saying stop being poor or stop stop being you know just stop being poor or just stop being just stop you know this person's had um you know an any emotional eating problem for years of their life just stop just stop eating crap that kind of messaging can get across there when you go to the extreme i'm not saying it's everyone i'm not saying it's all the messaging but it can be filtered as such and that can lead people to feel very low about themselves and truth resilience is like a very uh, it's kind of like a, fl- a flitting nuanced concept because of course it's going to feel hard when you change a habit because change the brain is not necessarily attuned to change right away we like our habits we like to inbuild a sense of safety in ourselves with our routines uh, whether whatever that looks like for you and so when we change that routine it can feel quite uncomfortable and quite you know dis- disarming and that's very normal what i think is better to have is like a spectrum of zero to 10 10 being like why am i getting up at 4 a.m for a run when i can run at 6 p.m just fine just for the sake of just for the sake of being just uncomfortable and you know two or three thinking okay normally i'd you know normally i'd have like two glasses of wine tonight i'm trying to cut back feels a bit weird not having them but i'm actually enjoying watching tv with my loved one with a nice dinner having a social time without it it's weird but i can deal with it I think there's a level of discomfort there when you're looking at changing habits, but also with habit change, as you say, it's very simple in the sense that it's a bit like building a muscle in the gym where you're looking at ways of making it work for the person and not trying to get the person to work for the habit. So you're trying to implement little micro changes and building on them week in and week out and, you know, congratulating that person on the change because it's not always easy. So yes, to your answer, I don't think you know, we need to take 5am ice baths or 4am runs because A, the evidence, there's actually no real evidence to suggest that this whole idea of disciplining yourself it, it exists in it solely in of itself. In fact, discipline is, I, I, I don't, and I could be completely wrong on this, so please correct me, but I don't think there's actually a solidified term in the psychological research for discipline. I, I really don't. And I think it's in looking at habit change, behavior change, resilience, looking at adaptive, flexible psychology rather than just pure suffering. And if we're talking about flexibility and how we are, why would you want to be just one way? Why would you want to be so rigid? Because there might come the time where you're having a relaxed holiday and you can't sit still because you want to be uncomfortable all the time. You want to be in distress all the time. You want to be training for six hours a day. And for you, it could be very uncomfortable, ironically. Mm. So it's better, I think, to advocate for psychological flexibility where you're advocating a space for yourself in any and all situations whether that be a bit bit of discomfort and being learning creating a toolkit and learning how to implement it at those times and also knowing when to switch off because we're human beings we're not robots and i do wish i do wish some figures would stop treating us as such um and i think it's harmful for the ways in which people view behavior change people think it's this big noble thing when it, it can be the smallest of changes that add up big time over time oh yes that's why i like the bringing chaos through your butterfly effect using that <laughs> using that practice though i don't recommend reading the chaos theory book um fully written very fully written. <laughs> i remember what was it it was watching yeah watching chaos theory that has uh, i think it's wesley snipes in it mm-hmm. um and then I saw a book there and the whole the whole premise of how you get away with thing. And I was like, oh, okay, look, a book. I'm going to go pick that up and read it. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good 400 pages I wish I never read. 
But who uses toilet paper? It one hundred percent. I don't know how the guy got funding for it. So like, realistically, someone should have read it and gone like, you could have summed up everything in the four hundred pages into ten pages and yeah. then started the book. But anyway, but I I I like those instances because I think it's like, guys, look, if you have da- if you ever have self doubt, Ayn Rand used to be considered a philosopher. You, oh, everyone has hope. Everyone has hope. <laughs> don't don't ever put yourselves down, people. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> we're going to be taking that clip bang there we go social media will love it <laughs> i'm gonna get so much trolling from libertarians <laughs> uh, <laughs> you just didn't read her you just didn't understand her oh <laughs> uh, we so have to do that um we you point out at a wonderful thing there with um psychological flexibility could you dive into more the nuance or how we classify um, flexibility and how we would go about developing it? That's a really good question. So it also, it's psychological flexibility. Obviously you look at the more um, clinical aspect of it. So in terms of its application, it's obviously used in a concept named acceptance and commitment therapy, but it can be, it's very practical. I use it with all my clients and essentially Obviously, we know flexibility. We could look at it from a physical perspective where, oh, look, they're very bendy and they they can go in this range and this range. And obviously, when we're in in more casual vernacular, I might be like, oh, I'm flexible. I'm easygoing. I can go with the flow. So you already have an image of what people can view as flexibility in terms of the literature. For more to be a slightly more specific, it can refer to a number of um, a number of processes unfolding at a given time. So a good example could be, you know, I'm here, I'm having a wonderful chat with Stephen. I'm also at the same time feeling quite hungry. For instance, I'm actually not hungry. I had a really nice lunch, but I'm having two things at once. You know, you can feel feel one thing and also act in a different way. So a good example: someone might feel really frustrated that they can't. Um, they can't even go to the gym tonight. They have plans. They're feeling really frustrated. They're feeling hard on themselves. They're beating themselves up for not going. And they can also acknowledge they've had a really busy day at work. They actually need to rest. Otherwise, if they go to the gym tomorrow, it's probably not going to be beneficial. They're going to be absolutely knackered. And they know logically that it's in their best interest in terms of rest and recovery to just give this night a bit of a, a bit of an off, off, off go. Go read a book. Go be with a loved one. Relax go back to it tomorrow. And this person, for instance, I'm using case study B, C, D, whatever. This person might be naturally very hard on themselves and th- consider a night off the gym in their regimented program a failure. And in order to encourage more flexibility, you would encourage them to sit with these two different di- opposing dynamic processes. So this idea of feeling frustrated and feeling guilty for not going to the gym, but also acknowledging no, I need to do this. It's for the, the, my best interest. And then therefore not attending the gym and going home to do whatever. And it might be in that moment, they f- still feel the guilt. But over time, once they practice sitting in that feeling, sitting in that frustration, and that guilt, whilst also not going to the gym when they really need to rest, they start to learn, oh, it's not the end of the world. I'm not going to the gym. So you're developing that flexibility by being able to balance these opposing metrics in one go. So it can look like many things. Um, it can look like, for instance, I might feel really happy that I'm having a great conversation um, on, on Stephen's podcast today. And I can also feel really sad or frustrated about the news I read. But I also know that I can't control 
externally what's going on. So I'm going to enjoy my moment here and be happy and present here. I can feel these two things at the same time and act in according to how I want to live. In psychological flexibility, what we can do to advocate for that ability to be malleable in how we behave and how we live is actually assign ourselves values. So we can bring in some Aristotelian philosophy here as well and look and reflect on how we want to live or how we see our future selves a year's time, two years time, three years time, and how can we replicate that? So it might be that one of my one of my values is, um, as an example, like loyalty or friendship and family. So it could be that um, I have a big work project or a business thing I want to be working on on a Friday, and I know I've said to my friend I've got I've got to go to her birthday party, and I could be feeling frustrated that I can't do my business project, and at the same time I can be going to my friend's birthday party because I know my value overarching this emotion I have is loyalty and friendship and a kinship and i know that that emotion which is actually really interesting i read something earlier that um obviously the latin emotere mm. means like kind of like transient movement it's not it's not solid right it's something that will go this feeling of frustration is not permanent but my value my overarching value that i have for the way i want to live is much more solid values values can change over time of course but we revisit them purposefully. We can't really revisit a feeling. I can't go back and think, oh, actually, I'm going to wipe out the guilt I felt there. I'm just going to internally change my physiology and just go, I want to feel this way. <laughs> but we can't do that. We can control how we live based on our values. <clears throat> so with psychological flexibility, we want to be able to adapt based on everything going on internally and externally in accordance to how we want to live. And that can help us, you know, still feel everything we feel. We can't change that, but it gives us much more freedom to act in spite of everything we're feeling or experiencing at that moment. <coughs> I like it. I think it's, I know this, some of the beauty, because obviously philosophy comes in and Eastern philosophy loves bringing in that, mm -hmm. which is, <laughs> the minimalist movement is I still find it interesting in the sense that I can give you a square I can give you a circle right and then it's just like what do you see then it's just a square and a circle it's like right okay now look further what are the four pillars you know representing it's a mm. circle representing and it's it's bringing that ability to sit and recognize that there's so much more happening and that's why like you know yin yang works really well in that sense it's mm. it's a kind of showing you that ability so it's like as soon as you learn it and actually start embracing it it's it's amazing what so many things in your life can change yeah just, absolutely just simple practice simple absolutely practice. And it's funny because we were discussing things like discomfort earlier and a lot of people assume discomfort is like getting up at 5am, going to train. Honestly, that is far easier than sitting with your feelings about this feels uncomfortable because I'm the emotions can be very, I mean, emotions are not based in rationality. Many times they are signposts to what's going on internally. You can feel very, very strongly about something and at the same time have to act against that emotion in the sense that just uh, anxiety is a great one. Uh, social anxiety is horrible. It's, it's very painful. It can be very life-crushing. So you can feel incredibly nervous about going to a social event. You have all these images about someone hating you or you being like looked on and frowned upon. None of these based in reality. If you were to feed into that feeling and continuously 
live your life based on those emotions like living in accordance with those emotions you'd never see anyone and the social anxiety would feed itself and get worse in order to slowly break that obviously you'd find a safe safe container to do so and challenge challenge it over time but you would feel these feelings and then start to live against those emotions to start to train yourself to think i might be feeling very anxious i feel horrible it's still shit doing this but I'm still going to live in accordance with a value of connection. I want to connect with other people. I want to create a good community around me. Therefore, as much as it pains me, I'm going to go out to this event. Eventually, of course, you start to realize no one actually hates me. And actually, I'm I'm a pretty nice person to be around. Like I'm making good friends. And that emotion each time gets weaker and weaker. So the discomfort is not even necessarily an external challenge or an obstacle or trying to prove to you know, social media or your bloody martial arts dojo that you're tough. It's about being able to actually regulate yourself. And that's fucking hard for anyone. Doesn't matter if you're, you know, I know they talk about, you know, Royal Marines being very stoic and tough, but actually it's because they're really, really, probably really good at regulating that part of them that feels all these emotions. Mm. Uh, You know, it's, um, it's a very interesting concept. And I think this idea of toughness and, and, being strong and being you know unstoppable actually a lot of the fight is internal and um also knowing when to rest and fighting that urge just to go out and be and you know be a bull in the china shop so to speak that's tough but it's it's well worth it because then you can start to be free from all these constraints whether they be external influences telling you how to live or these internal emotions which may as well be influenced by of course a build-up of this um it, you're freed from those and i think that's really powerful yeah <laughs> i've got a friend and uh, he pointed out the one day that it's often easier to do 15 20 kilometer runs 180 kilometer cycles than it is to sit down with the nagging voice that sits next to you and tells you you're worthless you're a piece of shit and i was like that's that's heavy to deal with a hundred percent because also imagine uh, when you're looking on social media, especially, and I think this is important for those who struggle with motivation or feel like they can't go to the gym or they're not good enough for going to the gym. I actually think that a lot of trainers and a lot of the social media gurus who say, just be hard, just go to the gym. Often they're using that as an escape from here, which is not a bad thing. We all have our coping mechanisms. But again, if we're thinking about spectrums and extremes, we all want to be able to be malleable and be in a healthy middle here, for instance. If you're just escaping and you're not actually sitting with what's going on, you're simply using that method as an escape. And actually, I would argue in that case, you're not actually adhering to a brutal routine change because you're doing it because you need to escape. Whereas someone, you know, who hasn't been to the gym in in years, who struggles with self-esteem, taking those first couple of steps, just going into the gym, that's terrifying. I'd say that's far far more emotionally strong than someone who actually uses the gym as a crutch there's no criticism there we all have our we all have our vices and all have our own personal struggles but that person who goes to the gym all the time as an escape probably would benefit from two two nights a week you know either doing something introspective for themselves going to therapy or doing something mentally and emotionally for themselves as opposed to just training and i think that's really important i don't think that um enough professionals talk about it that sometimes exercise is not a symptom of discipline or health or well-being it's actually the polar opposite i completely agree i think it can be harder to just be with your yeah. thoughts your feelings that that can be the scariest thing in your mind yeah no it, 
it gets scary because then you see it in the sense of routine as well. And that's, I, yeah, it's one that I love talking to clients and I'm like, you death by routine in the sense that like you create as a way to cope, but you're not actually coping here. You just ever so slightly jigging everything around so that it works. And they're like, no, but it helps. And I was like, is it really helping? And they're like, no, no, it is. And I was like, so then why do you still have these same feelings? What, what do you what do you notice when you get out of routine? It's like, oh, heightened anxiety. And I was like, so then how is it helping? Because <laughs> I, like, I was like, if I do exercise and I have like, you know, I'm feeling stressed. I was like, I feel great. Done. I was like, but if I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm feeling stressed and then I exercise, I don't feel great. <laughs> no. I feel destroyed. <laughs> exactly. It's like you, you come out of the gym and you're just like, <laughs> like, why? Why did I do that? Someone shoot me, like just breast me down. And you go, right. It's like having the proper mechanisms in place. Mm-hmm. So, so I won't take up all your time because we can be here all the time. I have two questions for you. We'll start with the nice one. What's your favorite anime? Oh, this is a great question. You so so my favorite anime is actually preemptive because I've read the manga and it's yeah. gonna be Chainsaw Man because the manga is amazing. And I highly recommend read the manga. Um, because even though it's only only season one, it gets mm-hmm. so good and it's one of my favorite stories. I'd say in terms of complete animes, although it's not really complete, complete because the author kept having a hiatus hunter hunter if you want like a complete story is brilliant yeah. really good really good so hunter hunter or chainsaw man for anime for sure chainsaw man is really good though the, re- the man have you read the full manga i haven't actually you have to read the full manga it it's it's really good i won't so, say anything i won't say anything because like when someone told me actually my, it was my boyfriend who introduced me to it he said i'll just read it yeah. and i was like why introduce me to a manga called chainsaw man like but I don't like these shown like super shonen stuff. I like things that like are quite psychological. And then afterwards I read it, I was like, I'm both really depressed and just super impressed. Like I was like, oh. the piece, it was like a masterpiece of psych like psychological like writing. It was really good. Ooh. Like it's something you won't expect, especially because season one, I get they they had to I I understand what they've done. They've put season one as like a taster, yeah. and then basically it all goes to chaos. So mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. It's really good. Okay, I like that. I like that. So we have some, some we have, uh, how do you say, outside of academic reading. I like that. And then the second one, if you had to change health in some way or capacity so that everyone had a better time, how would you do it? Sorry, what was the change Change health? Health, yes. Yeah, so oh, sorry, I, I've got a block left here. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> So the idea is in looking at in terms of how we perceive health, how we deal with health. It's like you can take it whichever way you like. That's a really nice question. I actually have um, my good friend, Lauren, who's also an awesome coach. I recommend her. And she's hilarious and she has really fluffy cats and she's the best. I recommend her to no end. We have regular discussions on this because health is such a actually quite a nebulous concept. I think in one sense, sometimes we get infected with either purely physical or the purely mental and the purely biological. And actually health is more of a biopsychosocial phenomenon. Yes, of course, it's looking at what's going on biomedically, regular GP checkups, you know, what you're eating, how much movement you're getting in overall. But then you've got obviously your psychological state, but then that in turn is also influenced by your social health, your social hygiene. Um, So it's a complicated one. And I would say to people that um, don't look at health as like a monolith, 
And first off, being concerned about health in some sense is in a sense a privilege. Some people barely have enough time to put food on the table, right? Rather than, and this is why I don't like the whole wellness industry of like ice baths and optimizing your dopamine, which isn't even a fucking thing. But, you know, I don't, it, it's not like, it's not, it, it, but you know, it's ridiculous because, you know, some people just want to get the basics right. And I'd say for the basics, look at things like, of course, your movement, your exercise, that's really important um, because that can help you feel really good. And it's yes, there are biomedical markers for just improved health just on a basic level. But also look at your friendship groups. Are you with your family members? Are you creating that community? If you're more introverted, are you making sure you're getting balance of quiet time and also interacting with people so you feel connected? I would actually look at those aspects as well, because Again, just going, harking back to that social cultural trope of us being quite an individualistic society, it can feel quite isolated when you're feeling these things. When you're having like a microcosmic community of your own, like support systems, friendships, family members, if you have, you know, if you have the means to, that can actually help support all your gym and health and eating habits because you have that support network. And also it puts into perspective, you know, you're not just someone who goes to the gym. You're not just someone who eats a certain way. You are a human being with many different facets to yourself. And that's a much more adaptive, flexible way of seeing yourself rather than putting yourself an identity, which, you know, it's it's quite a human thing to do because categories are neat and pretty and tidy, but it's not a human thing. So I would encourage people to look at, um, take a step back and look at the ways they're interacting with themselves and also others around them. I love that. I love that bang on that one bang on so for everyone who would like to read the book where can they go or and find you where can they go awesome thank you so much so you can go on to amazon but the last time i checked it was sold out i believe they they tend to rebatch every few days so it should be there so you can go on to amazon to find fit philosophy if there's not there, if for your american listeners you can get it via walmart online alternatively amazon do have online alternative sellers so you can just go on normal and find um alternative ways of buying on the new so amazon is always a good reliable way to go and you can find me on my instagram which is sophie t so s-o-f-i-t-e-e um or my website fitphilosophycoaching.com and there you can contact me if you want to just have a natter about all things brain and behavior <laughs> especially watching uh, the the best part is when you're doing uh, jits and like you're um, there and you're like yeah. i'm in pain and i'm like yay look. yeah th- yeah th- this is like a, it's like oh i'm in pain i'm so happy <laughs> what's wrong with us yeah oh, yeah oh <laughs> yeah it's been an absolute pleasure oh absolutely. thank you so much Stephen. it's been yeah. awesome thank you for having me